everyone. Welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. I'm Nicole, and I'm here today again with Journey and Rebecca. In today's episode, we're going to delve deep into the life and story of Canadian serial killer Robert Picton, who's also known as the Pig Farmer Killer, as well as a relatively new science called geographic profiling. As per usual, we just want to say that listener discretion is advised, as there will be conversations about murder, dismemberment, and graphic details. So, Journey, do you want to tell us a little bit about Robert Picton? I know you've done some projects on him. Yes, I am very excited to share with you the life history of Robert Picton. So, Robert Picton was actually the biggest case in Canadian history. The size of the crime scene was just massive. There were so many investigators, and the amount of money that they spent on the investigation was incredible, as well as the number of victims that he had. So overall, he's the most prolific serial killer in Canadian history, which is crazy. Uh, so a little bit of background about him. Robert Willie Picton was born to Leonard and Helen Louise Picton on October 24th, 1949. He was born with an umbilical cord wrapped around his neck, and I was reading in one of my psychology textbooks that when babies are born with birth complications, it increases their likelihood to be aggressive and have a more nefarious life, I guess is the best way to put that. So it's kind of the beginning of his tumultuous lifestyle. Um, he's the second of three children. He has an older sister, Linda, and a younger brother, Dave. Um, Willie didn't spend much time growing up with Linda because she moved out as soon as possible because their family situation wasn't great. And so he developed a very weird relationship with his brother Dave, where he kind of treated him as a father. Yeah, it was weird. So they were born on a pig farm in Dawes Hill, British Columbia. And then in 1963, the family actually moved their pig farm to 953 Dominion Avenue in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. And I believe that it's still owned by the siblings or by the family, even though it's just an empty plot of land in the middle of the city. And I actually had the chance to go see it this summer, which was very cool, even though there was nothing there. So a little bit more about his family. They didn't believe in cleaning or personal hygiene, which is not what you want when you live on a pig farm. His mom would let animals roam around the house, like just come in whenever they wanted. And she didn't clean up after them, which is absolutely disgusting. And so the kids always smelled like pigs, and they had to do chores before they went to school, so that did not make them very popular with the other children. And so Willie struggled in school because he was shy, he smelled horrible, had a squeaky voice, and had a speech problem. And so as a result, he dropped out of school at 14 years old. He wasn't illiterate or stupid, he just needed extra time to kind of read and write things, so he just took a little bit longer to process things. And so when he dropped out at 14, his mom was very excited because then he could come help out at the farm and specifically help out with slaughtering the pigs, which, ironically, he did not enjoy. And so eventually, Willie got an apprenticeship as a meat cutter, which was beneficial because their family operated a butcher business, which he took over when his father passed away in January of 1978. And so even though he was a meat cutter, his true passion was cars and mechanics, and so he would often go to car auctions and buy old cars to fix up and sell parts. And him and his brother Dave actually started stealing cars and operating a chop shop. Dave was n is not a good person. He's heavily affiliated with um, Hell's Angels. Okay, so his mom died in April 1979. 
And in her will, she made it so that Willie couldn't leave the farm until he was 40 if he wanted to receive his inheritance. And so he just kind of felt trapped. And I think that if he was able to leave the farm when she died, he wouldn't have turned out as a killer. But that's just my personal opinion. Was there much of an inheritance to begin with, though? Like, it sounded like they didn't have a whole lot, especially if they're living in their own filth. Like, why would he put himself through staying until 40 at the farm? I don't know. It was like $20,000. So would it be like $20,000 plus the farm, um, like the estate cost or whatever it's called? They were each given $20,000 lump sum payout when she died and then he was going to get the rest of the money after he was 40 which was That's x so amount weird. i'm not sure what it was yeah i don't fully understand it but it was enough for him to stay on the farm yeah okay yeah and so his relationship was very strained with his parents and even though he was a mama's boy he always kind of felt like she kept him from living his life which is very evident with her making him stay on the farm and so an example of this strained relationship, when he was 12, he saved up enough money to buy a calf and he was so excited about it and he loved that calf so much and every day he would race home to see his calf, except for one day he came home and his calf was butchered in the barn by his father and it broke his heart. Yeah, that would break my heart too. Well, that's so mean. Why would he do that? Right? Like he that's just comes awful. home and is- yeah, his father just murdered his calf. That's like your like parents killing your favorite pet. Like, if you came home and, like, your cat was just butchered. I know they're different animals, but, like, it's that same connection. Yeah, yeah but, was, like, just let him have a little bit of happiness. Yes, so, obviously, that traumatized him. And so, he kind of had a weird relationship with animals after that. And so, when his favorite horse, Goldie, died, he mounted his head on the wall in his bedroom. What? Yeah, so he just had a taxidermied horse head above his bed in his bedroom. That's not weird at all. That's super weird. Or creepy. Yeah. How did, did, was the horse butchered by his father or just died of natural causes? passed, passed away of natural causes. So Willie was also strangely good at making friends. So he always had like a few friends just at the farm or with him and it was very, very weird. His oldest and best friend was Lisa Yeltz. So they knew each other when they were children. And then he moved away and then they kind of reconnected later. And so she said that he always reminded her of Ed Gein. And she always kind of felt like he could be a serial killer, but wasn't worried because she knew that he would never hurt her. And she even believed, like when the police questioned her about him killing the missing women... She believed that he was responsible for some of the missing women, and she knew that he could butcher anything. So it's kind of chilling to know that she knew and suspected for so long and did nothing about it. It's kind of chilling in the fact that she still stayed friends with him, even though she had these suspicions. Yeah, she just was completely unfazed because she knew that he would never hurt her, because he's extremely loyal to who he trusts. Yeah. But That's just a weird mindset. Like, oh, he wouldn't kill me, so whatever. It's fine. He may kill yeah. other people, but no biggie. And she's like, I can't come forward because who's going to believe that he's a serial killer? Oh, my gosh. So in the early 1980s, 
Robert Pickton started cruising the downtown east side of Vancouver on his way back from his trips to the West Coast Reduction Plant. And so that's where he took all the leftover pig remains on a regular basis. It was um, a rendering plant where you could just get rid of like that biohazardous material. And so this is also how we suspect that he got rid of so many of his human remains because he was so well known at the rendering plant that no one inspected his barrels or questioned him being there. So he could just drive in and dump barrels full of human remains and no one would be the wiser. And then on his way home, he would drive through the downtown east side, which if you don't know, that's where a lot of the homeless people and prostitutes were, and then pick up women. That's very frightening. How, I just don't understand how these plants work. Like no one even bothered like, don't they have to be scanned or something or wait? Like, how does that work? He would go there often enough with pig remains. And so people were familiar with him and they knew, okay, he's a pig farmer. He's here to drop off these barrels full of pig remains. And so they wouldn't even question it because he was such a regular. And so even if they did look in the barrels, it's just goo. Like, you wouldn't be able to tell a pig intestine from a human intestine just by, like, looking at it, you know? That's so creepy. I don't like that. Yeah. And so Robert Pickton also liked to believe that he was helping the women by helping them get rid of their drug addiction. However, he only gave them one chance. And he's quoted saying, if they go back to dope, well, then they don't deserve to live. They're useless. They're better off dead. Which kind of makes you think about his motives for murder. Murder. He sounds like a gentleman. Yeah, he's just helping them quit their addiction. And if they don't quit then he's going to kill them and save them yeah very so sorry how did he claim to help them quit their addictions before killing them he would get them to come to his farm with promises of money and drugs and then when they didn't say no to the drugs he would kill them so he's not really giving them a chance he's like hey i know you're addicted to dope i have some at my farm do you want it? Like, that's 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 not helpful. Nope, not really. Um, anyway, he also had a friend um, named Gina Houston, who is suspected of helping him get women. He actually had a few of his female friends help him, like, procure the prostitutes so that he could kill them, which is very, very disturbing. And so she would kind of, like, hang out around the downtown east side and convince women to come back to the farm and she wasn't only procuring women for Willie. She was also getting women for his brother and the other men that were at the farm or at his brother's bar. And so he kind of had to get her to do this because a lot of the women were suspicious of him. Because in 1997, Sandra Gale Ringwald survived one of his attacks. And so he picked her up, took her back to the farm. They did what they did. And then she went to call someone to kind of let him know or let them know where she was he didn't really like that so he attacked her she grabbed a knife slashed at him cut him and he kind of cut her somewhat somehow as well and she managed to get away and both of them actually spent time in the hospital because of this like it was quite an aggressive fight and so she ended up pressing charges but she didn't show up to court so the judge dropped all the charges which is kind of upsetting. But she was afraid of him because he was scary and he very much held a grudge against her for that. And so there was quite a bit of women disappearing during the 1980s and 1990s from the downtown east side. And so in 1997, 
13 women disappeared from Vancouver's downtown east side. One of them was Marnie Frey, who was 24 when she was last seen in August of 1997. And then in 1998, 11 women disappeared. In 1999, only four women disappeared because Willie knew that he was under surveillance. And so two of them were Brenda Ann Wolfe, who was 31 when she disappeared in 1999, and Georgina Pappin, who was 37 when she was last seen in March 1999. She was a mother to seven children, and she was working at the downtown east side at the time of her disappearance. One of the guys who worked at Picton's farm, Scott Chubb, thought that he saw her with Picton in the spring of 1999 when she disappeared. And then in September 2001, it was released that there was 45 women missing from the downtown east side, and that number increased steadily up to his trial. And so then by October 2001, the police finally announced that there was a serial killer on the loose, thank goodness, and the number was increased to 46 after another woman went missing. And in 2001, Andrea Josbury disappeared at age 23, Serena Abbotsway disappeared in August at age 30, and Mona Wilson was last seen in November 2001 at age 26, and she is suspected to be his last victim. I didn't realize it was a lot like sooner to us in time than I originally thought. If that makes sense. Like I thought this was in the eighties that he was doing his killing, but like the two thousands that boggles my mind. He did a lot of his killing in the 1990s, but it wasn't until the early two thousands when people actually started to investigate him and to suspect that there was a serial killer because it was prostitutes that were disappearing and they were not thought of as important. Yeah, I just, I always think of, like, the 80s as serial killers because no one can get away with serial murders in the 2000s that everyone believes nowadays, so it's interesting. Yeah, and um, fun fact, it's suspected that the Green River Killer actually partied at um, his brother's bar and was on their farm, and they were kind of like, not friends, but like they knew each other. Because they were kind of active at the same time. And for a lot of the missing women, the Green River Killer was suspected of killing them. So it was kind of like a toss-up between, was it the Green River Killer or was it Robert Picton who killed these women? Is this like the Green River Killer from the States, that Green River Killer? Yes, because wasn't he active in Washington, which is like very close to Vancouver? Okay, yeah. I'm not good with geography. That makes sense now. Yeah, Seattle's like a what two-hour drive odd from Vancouver. coincidence, though. Like, right? what an odd yeah. coincidence that these two, like, prolific serial killers are on the go at the same time, happen to know each other? Maybe they had a serial killer group. They just conversed with each other, like a Facebook chat, an MSN serial killer group chat. That would be something. So, a lady who is living on his farm... Lynn Ellingson actually witnessed the murder of one of his victims. And in her testimony at his pretrial, she said she saw knives on a table, a body suspended from a chain, black hair on the metal table, and a pile of human viscera in the barn. And so when Picton noticed that she was there, he threatened her that if she told anyone, she would end up just like this person. And he also forced her to stay and watch him finish butchering the lady, which is horrific and so she was actually with Picton when he went to pick up this lady from the downtown east side 
she needed a fix of something. So they went there and he picked up this girl with the promise of drugs again and got her something. So she was passed out in the house when he did what he did to this other lady. Another guy who I've already mentioned, Scott Chubb, testified that Picton would inject antifreeze in between their toes to make it look like an overdose. And so he told them this because he wa- he was worried that Lynn Ellingson was going to snitch on him and he wanted her taken out. So he's like, this is how you do it. They're all junkies, so make it look like an overdose. And he's like, no. Why wouldn't he choose the arm as a first choice of injection site? Is it a common thing? for Like, I know junkies will put it between their toes, but is that, like, normal once you become a junkie? Like, can you not hit a vein in the arm at that point? He just said that that's the best way to make it look like an overdose. Okay. So, Fair enough. Yeah. I and just can't Scott- get over the whole, um, hey, you just witnessed me murder a woman. Don't tell anyone or I'll kill you, too. But please stay and watch the rest of it so you have more against me. Yeah. He did that so that she wouldn't run away and tell people. He kind of, like, did that so he could always keep an eye on her and be like, hey, you can't go anywhere. You have to stay here. Um, so Scott Chubb was actually the first person to kind of figure out that Willie was the person killing these women. And he told his brother Dave in January or February of 1999 to, quote, get Willie off the street to stop the murdering, end quote. And he also spent a lot of time on the farm. And he said, like, between the amount of women's clothes, purses, jewelry, the guns on the farm, and Willie's skills as a butcher, it just made sense, especially with all the women coming in and not leaving. So he was very convinced. And he he took this to his gang-related brother and not the police. Yes, because he figured Dave could talk to Willie and be like, hey. Dave was probably like, cool, I've got a cool brother if he's in some gang crap. He just ignored it, essentially. He was like, that's ridiculous. My brother wouldn't do that. Yeah. It's bro code, so he can't can't talk about it. (laughs) Exactly. And so um, another guy who was actually pretty close with Picton... He was so close that Picton told him how he would kill the women. And so he told them that he would bring the arms of the victims like behind them, handcuff them, put a belt around their necks and kind of like pull it tight. And then he also said that he would strangle them with a piano wire fashioned into a garage. And he was given like a demonstration by Picton, not on a real person, but he just kind of like acted it out how he killed the women and so the guy Andrew Bellwood is quoted saying I remember him telling me that he'd hang them in the barn and bleed them and gut them whatever the pigs didn't eat he'd throw in the barrel not a pretty sight and so then after telling Bellwood this and showing him how he would do it he got another one of his friends to beat him up because he knew that he made a mistake by telling him and he needed to scare him so he wouldn't tell anyone else and so now I'm going. This guy's a doozy. Oh. Yes. Okay, so what he told Bellwood is actually how he would kill the women. So Picton butchered his victims the exact same way that he butchered his pigs. So he would string them up by a hook through their ankle, kind of near their Achilles tendon. He would slit their throats, shoot them in the head, and then put them in hot water to kind of strip them of hair. 
And then he would gut them. He would put the entrails into a pail that would then go to the rendering plant. And interestingly, he was never seen killing a pig during the day, and he only butchered at night, which is very weird. I almost threw up hearing that. So he would, like, not even wrap a rope around their ankles and attach the hook to the rope. It went straight through their heels? Yes. That's horrific. Horrific. Like, I've heard some bad cases, and, like, I can read cases and be like, "Mm, yeah, that's pretty effed up, but... Who thinks to do that? Well, that's just how you butcher a pig. It was no... That's the way he knew how to butcher. I just feel like a pig's heel is much different than a human heel. And I can imagine... Like, I used to have Achilles tendonitis when I was little. And I had to do a whole bunch of grassman therapy. And I cringe. Like, I literally have goosebumps right now at the thought of a a hook. Going through. Okay. Yeah. No, it's not pleasant. At all. So in February um, of 2002, the police got onto the farm with a warrant to arrest Robert Picton um, for like illegal gun possession. And this was just the way that they could find enough evidence to get a warrant to search the farm for actual, for the missing women. Um, on February 7th, they started searching the farm. They divided the property into seven sections. So the first was the trailer where Willie lived. The slaughterhouse was the second. Third was the mechanical shop. Then there was the garage and the workshop that were the fourth section. Um, The barn was the fifth. And the original Picton farmhouse where they grew up was the sixth. And then they had the motorhome, which was what um, Willie would kind of drive to the downtown east side to pick up the women. And so now I'm going to talk about the evidence that they kind of found in each of those sites. When they were in the midst of like searching the trailer and they were about to move to the slaughterhouse because you search these sections in order to make sure, like just to keep it organized. So they would search from like site one to site two to site three just to make sure that they didn't miss anything. And so they started with the trailer and they were about to move to the slaughterhouse and they became worried about losing the potential evidence in the freezers in the garage and the workshop. They had about nine freezers in the garage I think because they were a butcher business so they needed somewhere to store all the meat and so they interrupted their system and they started searching the workshop next and they found frozen heads in five gallon pails human heads yes not pig heads but human heads human heads and so in the buckets with the heads there was also hands and feet of the women And so the skulls were cut in half with the hands placed in one half of their head and their feet in the other. And so one set of remains that was found in the buckets belonged to Andrea Josbury. Her hands were in good enough condition that they were actually able to lift fingerprints from them and identify her. And so she had been shot in the back of the head before being dismembered, and that was her cause of death. And investigators also found her DNA on clothes and a pillow a pillow cover in his bedroom and in a garbage bag outside of the slaughterhouse. The second bucket contained the remains of Serena Abbotsway. So she was also shot in the back of the head. They found her in a, or no, they found her duffel bag, multiple inhalers, her Bible, a pair of running shoes, a pair of heels, and three books in many different sites in the farm. And there was also a giant cistern behind the slaughterhouse where they found a piece of mandible, which is your lower jawbone, that belonged to Brenda Wolf. 
And they also found her leather jacket, two lipsticks, a green duffel bag that had a handcuff, a handcuff key, two handguns, and jewelry in it. And so it was this discovery that really highlighted the importance of searching every single nook and cranny because there was no telling where remains were going to be found. And then when the investigators were searching the slaughterhouse, they found 50 small bones that ended up being the hand bones of Georgina Pappen behind a platform. And they also found a green toothbrush, a friendship bracelet, a small knotted rope, a shell casing, and another bone that belonged to her in that area. And then in a different area where they found um, Marnie Frey's remains, they found Georgina Pappen's scaphoid, which is her wrist bone, one of her wrist bones. And so anthropology students found fragments of Marnie Frey's jawbone and teeth when they were sifting through one of the many bone pits on the farm. And these were pits of like pig bone and other animal bones, not just human bones. And so they found one more pail of human remains in the slaughterhouse that belonged to Mona Wilson. She had also been killed by being shot on the back of the head and her hands and feet were placed with her skull the same way as Serena Abbotsway and Andrea Josbury. And so the other evidence that was linked to Mona Wilson is a 22 revolver with a dildo on the end that had her and Picton's DNA on it but it is by far the most disturbing piece of evidence that they found, in my opinion. Um, they also found a blood-stained orange cushion and foam mattress that had semen and hair on it in the motorhome that belonged to Mona Wilson and Robert Picton. Um, they found a silver mesh hose with blood on it as well in the motorhome. And he actually admitted to killing her, along with three others who he didn't name, during his interrogation with the police. Actually, no, this is the most disturbing piece of evidence that they found. In July of 2002, there were garbage bags filled with ground meat found in the garage and workshop that was found to contain DNA of two missing women. Unfortunately, Picton was not convicted of their murders. I have no idea why. What? Um, There's yeah. ground meat in, the, in a bag. Was he eating the ground meat? Yeah, so this kind of supports the idea that he had been selling meat to the butchers in the area that contained human remains. And so his close friend, Lisa Yeld, thinks that some of the meat given to her by Picton had human remains in it, and that's how she got hepatitis C. So this was found in 2002, but they didn't release a public health statement until March of 2004. Everyone will have already eaten the friggin' meat. There's not going to be any human meat left on the market by then. Yeah, they suspected that so many people in the Lower Mainland had human remains in their freezer. Oh my god! Which is disgusting! After reading that, I did not eat ground meat for a very long time. Oh my... That, I don't know, that is worse than, like, Dahmer eating it himself. So, and he sold it! He People paid to eat human <laughs> It was, like, mixed with the pig meat. There's no real, like, concrete evidence that this happened. It's just everyone thinks that it did. And the ground meat in the freezer kind of supports that. And so, anyway, while they were searching his farm, there was a cell plant in with Picton when he was at the jail. And so, he Picton admitted to killing 49 women and said that once he reached 50, he would have stopped for a while before killing 25 more to make it an even 75. 
and he told that to the cell plant. And if you want to see a video of him confessing that, look up Robert Picton's cell plant on YouTube and you can watch, I think it's just a four-minute video of him talking to the cell plant and confessing to these murders. We'll, um, we'll put it in our source list on our website, too, if anyone wants to find it that way. It's less creepy than you would think. And then during another one of his interrogations with a detective, he told them where to find more bones. And when they dug them up, they were actually ostrich bones. And he was so pleased with himself that he kind of like took them on a wild goose chase. And he was also upset that he had gotten caught. And he kept saying that he had gotten sloppy and that's why he had gotten caught and that he just messed up and he was very distraught. But also I wouldn't be bragging about killing 49 women if I was that distraught. So four years before the trial took place, there was a preliminary inquiry. And at this preliminary inquiry, Willie started off being charged with 15 counts of first degree murder. And by the time the inquiry was over, he was being charged with 22 counts of first degree murder. And so this took place so long before the trial because there was over 350,000 DNA swabs that needed to be analyzed. And by the end of the trial, there was 1.25 million pages of documents, which is why it was the biggest case in Canadian history. That's wild. How do you process a million files? How many people do you need to process that many files? They had so many people working on it, and they had such a rigorous system. Well, they had to because they had so many pieces of evidence, and they had to be very meticulous because they knew if they messed up, this case would get thrown out, and they could not afford to mess up. So after his preliminary inquiry and the pretrial that took place, it was 2006, and he was being charged with 26 counts of murder. They found DNA or the remains of 26 women on his farm. Unfortunately, the judge decided to remove 20 of those charges because the trial would take too long and they had direct evidence for six women. That's so unfair to the other victims and their families. Right? Um, So the six women that he was charged with murdering are Serena Abbotsway, Mona Wilson, Andrea Josbury, Georgina Pappen, Brenda Wolf, and Marnie Frey. So the trial started on January 22nd, 2007. It took 11 months with only those six women. So can you imagine how long it would have taken if there was 26 women? Um, The jury was instructed for three days, and they left the courtroom to deliberate on November 30th, 2007, and they came back on December 9th with a verdict. He was found... Not guilty of first-degree murder, but guilty of second-degree murder of those six women. It was literally, it was premeditated. It's first-degree murder. But they couldn't prove that. So then charge him. Because he picked them them as random. Take him to trial for the other 20 then. Like, this is what happens when you only choose six. They wanted to, but the judge was like, why? Screw this judge. Screw this. And judge. also, I can understand, like, if if he, I'm I'm not saying he should have killed anyone, but like, if he was being charged with one murder and we only knew about one, I could understand it going from first degree to secondary because oh, it was one. Maybe he was just still really messed up, but he randomly chose 
49 different women, but in this case, six different women, you can't commit second degree murder and still be a serial killer. It's not an accident every time. Yeah. And even more aggravating, they, the jury didn't hear any information about anything that was found that didn't include those six women. So they didn't hear about the other 20 women or the the evidence that belonged to them. They didn't hear about um, Sandra Gale Ringwald's escape from his attack. They didn't hear about any of that. So they didn't know. As far as they knew, he only killed those six women. So, no, because when you go to trial, you can only go to trial with the charges and the people that you're charged with killing so any other victim that's not being charged against him is like outside information so it would be it wouldn't have a fair like the legal system screwed but it wouldn't give him the right to a fair trial so they're not allowed to mention anything else outside of those six people they can't mention any of his background like it's just yeah which is so heartbreaking but i'm still mad i know yeah And so the reason that he got away with it for so long, I kind of already talked about, was because he was targeting targeting prostitutes and the police officers didn't care because it meant less prostitutes on the street. And they refused to admit that there was a serial killer on the loose. And so many women went missing during the time that Robert Pickton was killing and there was nothing that was ever done about it. I think the final number of women that went missing was in the 70s during the time that he was active, which is absolutely ridiculous. The Vancouver police really dropped the ball, like incredibly dropped the ball. It was just absolutely aggravating. And then Robert Pickton was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. And in 2009, they wanted to start a trial for the other 20 women, Um, but the judge was like, he's already charged with six. We know that he killed those 20 women. It's not worth the time and the man hours and the taxpayers' money to go into another trial to get that first-degree conviction and to get justice for those other 20 women, which is really, really heartbreaking because they deserve justice as well. I can understand, though, playing devil's advocate here. Like, it is so terrible that it was only the six of the victims. But at least in Canada... We don't have the death penalty, so what's it going to change? He's still spending his life in prison. It's just the second title being added to him. Like, if this was in the States and, I don't know, Texas, like, this would be a whole other story trying to recharge him. But, like, there's, in Canada at least, it's just, it's life imprisonment. I I kind of agree with playing devil's advocate, but it still makes me mad because I think these women need justice. Yep, I agree. And by, like, that 2009... They were able, or they had more DNA matches. So they had 32 DNA matches to missing women found on the farm. And so they wanted to try him. But yeah, they just kind of said it's unlikely. They didn't really want to do it because memories fade, money runs out, and important witnesses die. So they didn't really have anything other than that circumstantial DNA evidence that was found, which is ridiculous. So that concludes the kind of life and history of Robert Picton. It was just a summary. The actual case is so, so, so detailed that we would have been listening to this podcast for hours and hours and hours, and I didn't want to do that to you guys. So if you are interested in learning more and of the details of this case, you should check out On the Farm by Stevie Cameron. It's a book. It's very, very well done. 
she's an investigative journalist, I believe. And so she put a lot of time into this and very well researched this case. And that's what I used for most of my sources. And it's very well written. I'd highly recommend it if you want to learn more about Robert Picton. Because it's like a 500-page novel, isn't it? Like, it's not just like a newspaper read. It's a hefty... Yeah, it's 700 pages of detail. It goes into his history. It goes into who the victims were. It names all 32 of those victims if you want to look more into them. Um, It goes into the police investigation and how they caught him, which I know Rebecca's going to go into. And... Yeah, it's very, very, very interesting and well-written. I highly, highly recommend it. Amazing. Well, we're going to put, um, I guess, the citing of that book. I don't know. We'll include it in our source list. You can always just re-listen to that section look it up. Um, but as Journey mentioned, Rebecca is going to talk a little bit more about the investigation portion and how he was caught. Right? Yeah. Like, what led to his capture? So, yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about geographic profiling. Uh, Journey did a super interesting presentation on this in our class last year, uh, and it's very clear that she very much enjoys this. (laughs) So I hope I do it justice, Journey. (laughs) So uh, just to briefly start, I wanted to go over what exactly geographic profiling was, or is, I guess, Um, Geographic profiling is based on research from the field of environmental criminology. Uh, And what environmental criminology is, is just basically figuring out how the environment influences crime and crime rates. So environmental crim is interested in the interaction between people, their surroundings and crime, such as how the environment influences the crimes uh, and as well as views crime as a product of offenders and their setting as opposed to something such as offenders and their psyche or their mental health. Um, So the reason this is important is because the main environmental criminology theories. So now that we know that environmental criminology is what geographic profiling is based on, uh, the actual definition of it, geographic profiling, is that it is a spatial analysis technique that analyzes the known locations of incidents which are geographically connected to an unknown base of operations to determine where that base is most likely located. So essentially saying... Uh, using the locations that victims are found, they kind of superimpose points on a map that suggest where the criminal might be presiding or might be based out of. So uh, to construct the method for determining the most probable area of the offender's residence, uh, they do this from looking at the location of the crimes, as I just said. So Because they're focusing on location of the crime more than what motivates the offender, they needed to make an algorithm that could put together all the points and make a systematic uh, map of hotspots. So because they needed an algorithm to make geographic profiling more uh, scientific, Uh, that is where the supposed father of geographic profiling came in, whose name was Kim Rosmo. So Kim Rosmo was the first person who introduced the scientific and forensic worlds to the practical application of geographic profiling criminal investigations, as before this, uh, it was used for purposes such as epidemiology, 
where it was used to locate origins of infectious diseases like the cholera outbreak. So the father of geographic profiling, Kim Rosmo, created an algorithm uh, to help us make these geographic maps. Um, so at the time he was creating this for crime, um, it was at a time in history that there was an increase in serial crimes. So that's why geographic profiling was so beneficial at the time, because the serial crimes gave us a big map of victims that we could superimpose to find the true offender. So it was used in investigations in the early 1980s, and then from there turned into an information management strategy for serial violent crime investigations. Um, so to do this, Kim Rosmo came up with a pretty complicated uh, formula to quantify the data of all the locations of the crimes, and he developed this algorithm into a computer system called Rigel. So in Rigel, uh, data points where the crimes have been committed are entered onto a map of the city, and then it applies the algorithm to 40,000 tiny squares on the grid map to calculate a hit score. What this hit score is, is the probability that the square on the map is the suspect's anchor point or home base. Um, so an anchor point is basically just in place of importance to the suspect. Uh, so it could be their home, it could be a friend's house, it could be a bar, um, or in situations such as if the individual's homeless, it could even be a constantly moving anchor point, which would make it more difficult for the investigation. So the hit score, once it, uh, once it finds the probability of which square the anchor point may be, um, it makes a calculation for each score and provides a very colorful graphic uh, over the map to show where the supposed hotspots might be. Uh, I have an example of what one of these maps would look like under the sources on our website if you wanted to check that out. Uh, but basically, anywhere red on the map indicates a hot zone, which is where the highest probability of the offender would reside. Following that would be yellow, and then of the least urgency would be green. Uh, so as it works with a lot of technologies and algorithms, the more data points that Rigel has to work with, um, obviously the more accurate that it's going to be. So the next uh, question, I guess, would be how exactly does Rigel do what it does? How does this algorithm calculate the journey to crime? Uh, and the journey to crime is a measurement of the distance between the anchor point, as we discussed earlier, and the location of the offense. Uh, so if the anchor point was the offender's house, it would just be how far Picton's farm was from each of the victim's locations. So how does Rigel come up with the journey to crime? It applies the nearness or least effort principle to this journey of crime. Uh, this least effort principle is when there's multiple choices of equal desirability, uh, the one that requires the least amount of effort or is closest to the chosen. So basically, killers are going to be lazy and choose somewhere that's kind of close to them because they don't want to have to drag a body all over God's creation. So... To properly use this uh, least effort principle, we need to understand what quantifies closeness or distance. Um, because as we just said, humans are lazy. We don't necessarily want to take the most difficult path to do something. 
So in order to find the most likely journey to crime, Rigel looks at five characteristics uh, to determine the easiest path to and from the crime scene and to the offender's anchor point. So these five characteristics that Rigel is analyzing are the relative attractiveness of origins and destinations, the number and type of barrier separating points. So are there highways, are there buildings, parks, forests that are getting in the way of their location? Uh, the third is the familiarity they have with the route. So how often are they traveling this? Uh, the fourth would be the actual physical distance between the scene of the crime and the anchor point. So is it five kilometers? Is it 500 kilometers? That's going to make a big difference. And finally, the attractiveness of the routes. So is the route hidden? Is it going through a remote tr uh, path in the forest? Is it easy to travel? Is there a lot of light? Is it shadowed? Uh, there's a lot of things that go into the attractiveness of a potential route. So uh, besides least effort principles, Rigel also considers buffer zones, which are sort of the opposite of the least effort principle zones. So buffer zones are areas around the individual's anchor point where they will likely not commit crimes because they fear that in these buffer zones, the crimes will be linked back to them. So Besides uh, buffer zones that Rigel is considering, it also shows us potential activity or awareness base of the criminal. So what this is, is sort of the opposite of buffer zones. Uh, it tells us where the offender feels most comfortable and is most likely to commit their crimes. So in the example of Robert Picton, uh, he felt most comfortable killing the women at his own home and then... Uh, disposing of their bodies at the rendering plant, then going back to his home where he was more comfortable around that area to pick up women. So because of this, it's very important that we look at all aspects of the crimes being committed because their anchor point might be different from their potential activity space. So talking a little bit more about Kim Rosmo, who we consider the father of geographic profiling, he was actually on the Vancouver Police Department as a geographic profile for the city during the time that majority of these women were going missing. Uh, but unfortunately, at the time that this science was being uh, kind of revolutionized, the police officers at the Vancouver PD didn't believe in his science. Uh, so they just didn't really believe him despite the fact that it was largely based on empirical fact and quantified data. Uh, so the police officers were just too adamant that geographic profiling was too subjective. They couldn't do it. There was no room for it in law enforcement. Uh, so that's a bummer because it definitely could have helped out. So as more and more women on the downtown east side of Vancouver were disappearing, Kim Rosmo was actually the first person to suggest that they might have had a serial killer in Vancouver. Um, despite this uh, hypothesis of a serial killer, which we did later find out to be very accurate, uh, the rest of the police officers didn't really want to investigate it at the time because, as Journey had said, um, most of the women didn't have a very high social standing. They were addicted to drugs or they were prostitutes. So the police just didn't really see a major purpose for investigating it, which is quite sad. Um, 
So Rosmo did try to do a little bit of geographic profiling himself on the missing women, but it was quite difficult for him to do because none of the bodies were found. So instead of the instead of putting the location of the victims' bodies into Rigel, he instead used where they were disappearing from for his point of reference. So he used where they were disappearing from to find the suspected killer's activity or awareness space. So from the geographic profile he made from this, he was able to learn that the downtown east side was the area that the killer felt most comfortable picking up his uh, victims. The case was interesting because Picton essentially had two activity spaces, as we mentioned before. The first was where he picked up his victims, which was the downtown east side. Uh, which we considered his hunting ground. But the second where he felt most comfortable was on his farm, his home, which is where he killed the women. In December of 2000, after Rosmo had suggested that there was a serial killer on the loose, after he had suggested geographic profiling would be helpful, uh, his contract for geographic profiling was not renewed by the Vancouver police in December of 2000. So at this time, he ended up having to leave the police department um, despite this, and despite the help he could have had to the police department, he wasn't terribly upset about it, um, as he was invited all over the world because of this to train and teach people about geographic profiling, this new science that he was kind of innovating. So, as we know, Kim Rosmo had to leave the Vancouver PD because his contract wasn't renewed. Uh, none of the police believed there was a serial killer on the loose, didn't believe geographic profiling would help. However, it came to light that Kim Rosmo's uh, profile was actually pretty impactful. It was actually pretty accurate to where Robert Picton was committing his crimes. I think it's, it's, it's very disappointing that they didn't consider the use of this at the time. I can definitely see where they were coming from because uh, we look at things like bite mark analysis, which they did put a lot of faith into when it first came out. And now we're realizing that maybe that wasn't the best idea. I definitely think geographic profiling is something that could have been used more effectively and uh, resulted in less wrongful convictions than other junk sciences that are out there. But that's just my opinion. No, I agree completely. I think if they had actually used it, then he would have been caught quite a bit sooner. And a lot of those women would still be alive. And I know that there's a lot of people who share that opinion. Yeah, it's very disappointing, for sure. Just to show the kind of impact that uh, investigators believe uh, geographic profiling is can have in an investigation process... Researchers have been building geographic profiles for several um, unsolved historical crimes in hopes of getting new aspects, new information about them. Uh, so some of the geographic profiles they have created were for Jack the Ripper, the Austin Axe Murderer, the Zodiac Killer, and the Sacramento East Area Rapist. So by using geographic profiles for cases like this, along with the advancements in DNA technology that we've been seeing, uh, some of the cases that are being reinvestigated, geographic profiles have hopes that this could be a very important part in the sus prioritization process and could possibly help us solve some of these very historical cold cases. Going back to Kim Rosmo for a second and the software that he had put together, when he was still working with the Vancouver Police Department and he did put together this geographic profile of who we now know as Robert Picton, but at the time was unknown, he had actually, with that, also put together a list of potential suspects as well as 
as well as where the crimes may have happened. Um, so this could have been really helpful along with the police tips that, sorry, this could have been really helpful along with the tips that police were getting that Robert Pickton specifically was named as having picked up prostitutes and bringing them back to his home and they weren't coming out of his home. Somehow that didn't matter to the police. Um, But it was after Kim Rosmo had left the Vancouver PD and after police kind of cracked down and realized, okay, you know what? This probably is a serial killer. This is really suspicious. Uh, So it was only after Abbott's Way had disappeared in 2001 that this task force was uh, open to investigate these killings. So that's really my spiel on geographic profiling uh, and how it impacted Robert Picton's case. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, geographic profiling before being used in criminal investigations was used for other stuff such as uh, epidemiology. So I just wanted to share a fun epidemiology fact about geographic profiling. Um, It was used to locate the origins of the cholera outbreak in 1854, Uh, And the outbreak had happened in Soho, London. Furthermore, in 2011, 321 sites of cholera deaths were re-examined, and it was found that the Broad Street pump, which was the actual source of the contamination, had ranked among 13 local water uh, pumps and was in the 0.2% of the geo profile. So by mapping out where the deaths of these cholera outbreaks were happening, we were able to determine exactly what water pump the contamination was happening in. So that's pretty cool. That's so cool. I absolutely love that story. I find it so interesting that they were able to trace it back to a water pump in 2011. Yeah, like that's... I honestly, Journey, before you spoke about geographic profiling in class last year, I didn't really have any clue what it was. So I didn't know that it was used in other things like epidemiology, but that's super cool. I, for some reason, was thinking that when the cholera outbreak happened, that's originally when they used geographic profiling. And I was like, how? (laughs) Like, there's no technology to use. This Rosmo guy was not around. Like, wow, they were advanced. But Okay, 2011, that makes sense. So there's only one more thing I wanted to say about geographic profiling, and it's sort of the same disclaimer that a lot of more recent sciences need because obviously we need like all that peer-reviewed research, even though we're getting that now for geographic profiling. Um, But it's just important to know that while this research is very important to help in public safety and advancing police investigations, Um, It should be used as an investigative tool more so than just being used on its own to convict a person. Like there needs to be more evidence alongside the profile to convict and charge an individual. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca. I knew a little bit about geographic profiling from Journey's presentation last year, but that is all. And I surprisingly didn't know the details of Robert Pickton. I thought I saw him or read something about him at one time. I just knew he was the pig farmer killer because I thought he like fed his victims to the pigs, but interesting. He did feed his victims to pigs and that's where he got rid of, I feel like a lot of like the bony evidence because they never found any arm bones or leg bones, which is very, very interesting. Going on to our next topic. So, We have yet to bring out the big book of serial killers because we've just been so into these topics recently. 
And we actually had one of our listeners suggest a case. So our next episode in two weeks' time, we're going to be discussing the case of Jeremy Stainkey and Jasmine Richardson. And although it's not necessarily a science, we're also going to be talking about the Youth Criminal Justice Act, so the YCJA. And this is another Canadian case. I myself have never heard of it. I don't know about you guys. Um, But it looks very interesting. I haven't personally heard about it either, so I'm very excited to learn about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so I haven't heard anything about it, but I know that I had a class about the Youth Criminal Justice Act, so I'm very interested to see how that played a part in this case. Yeah, same. Well, um, Journey, before we go, where can people find us for our typical outro spiel? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. And our website is whattheforensics.ca, where we post all of our episodes and sources and pictures and anything else that we find interesting. We also have an email, which is whattheforensics at gmail.com, if you want to send us any comments or questions or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Thank you. And before we go, I have a joke for you guys. Yay. I don't know if I've said this one before, though, but it's still very good. Um... So did you know that there's a new epidemic among forensic doctors? Is there? No. Yeah, they call it the coroner virus. <laughs> That's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> well, that was my awful joke of the week. And hopefully we will have some better ones next time. So this has been another fun and informative episode about serial killers and forensics and we hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next time just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field we are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners we're trying to give you the most accurate information but we are human and we can make mistakes thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week Mm -hmm.